Chapter Twenty of the Return of Doctor Fu Manchu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elaine Tweddle. The Return of Doctor Fu Manchu by Sax Romer. Chapter Twenty: The Crossbar. How long I lay there alone, I had no means of computing. My mind was busy with many matters, but principally concerned with my fate in the immediate future. That Dr. Fu Manchu entertained for me a singular kind of regard, I had had evidence before. He had formed the erroneous opinion that I was an advanced scientist who could be of use to him in his experiments, and I was aware that he cherished a project of transporting me to some place in China where his principal laboratory was situated. Respecting the means which he proposed to employ, I was unlikely to forget that this man, who had penetrated further along certain byways of science than seemed humanly possible, undoubtedly was master of a process for producing artificial catalepsy it was my lot then to be packed in a chest to all intents and purposes a dead man for the time being and dispatched to the interior of china what a fool i had been to think that i had learned nothing from my long and dreadful experience of the methods of dr fu manchu to think that i had come alone in quest of him that leaving no trace behind me i had deliberately penetrated to his secret abode I have said that my wrists were manacled behind me, that manacles being attached to a chain fastened in the wall. I now contrived with extreme difficulty to reverse the position of my hands, that is to say I climbed backward through the loop formed by my fettered arms, so that instead of their being locked behind me they were now locked in front. Then I began to examine the fetters, learning, as I had anticipated, that they fastened with a lock i sat gazing at the steel bracelets in the light of the lamp which swung over my head and it became apparent to me that i had gained little by my contortion a slight noise disturbed these unpleasant reveries it was nothing less than the rattling of keys for a moment i wondered if i had heard aright or if the sound portended the coming of some servant of the doctor who was locking up the establishment for the night the jangling sound was repeated and in such a way that I could not suppose it to be accidental. Someone was deliberately rattling a small bunch of keys in an adjoining room. And now my heart leaped wildly, then seemed to stand still. With a low whistling cry, a little grey shape shot through the doorway by which Fu Manchu had retired, and rolled like a ball of fluff blown by the wind, completely under the table which bore the weird scientific appliances of the Chinaman. The advent of the grey object was accompanied by a further rattling of keys. My fear left me, and a mighty anxiety took its place. This creature, which now crouched chattering at me from beneath the big table, was Fu Manchu's marmoset and in the intervals of its chattering and grimacing it nibbled speculatively at the keys upon a ring which it clutched in its tiny hands. Key after key it sampled in this manner, evincing a growing dissatisfaction with the uncrackable nature of its find. One of those keys might be that of the handcuffs. I could not believe that the tortures of Tantalus were greater than were mine at this moment. In all my hopes of rescue or release, I had included nothing so strange, so improbable as this. A sort of awe possessed me, for if by this means the key which should release me should come into my possession, how ever again could I doubt a beneficent providence? But they were not yet in my possession, moreover the key of the handcuffs might not be amongst the bunch. 
Were there no means whereby I could induce the marmoset to approach me? Whilst I racked my brains for some scheme, the little animal took the matter out of my hands. Tossing the ring with its jangling contents a yard or so across the carpet in my direction, it leaped in pursuit, picked up the ring, whirled it over its head, and then threw a complete somersault around it. Now it snatched up the keys again, and holding them close to its ear, rattled them furiously. Finally, with an incredible spring, it leaped onto the chain supporting the lamp above my head, and with the garish shades swinging and spinning wildly, clung there looking down at me like an acrobat on a trapeze. The tiny bluish face, completely framed in grotesque whiskers, enhanced the illusion of an acrobatic comedian. Never for a moment did it release its hold upon the key-ring. My suspense now was intolerable. I feared to move, lest, alarming the marmoset, it should run off, taking the keys with it. So as I lay there, looking up at the little creature swinging above me, the second wonder of the night came to pass. A voice that I could never forget, strive how I would, a voice that haunted my dreams by night, and for which by day I was ever listening, cried out from some adjoining room. Ta'alahina, it called. Ta'alahina peko. It was Karamina. The effect upon the marmoset was instantaneous. Down came the bunch of keys upon one side of the shade, almost falling on my head, and down leaped the ape upon the other. In two leaps it had traversed the room and had vanished through the curtained doorway. If ever I had need of coolness, it was now. The slightest mistake would be fatal. The keys had slipped from the mattress of the divan and now lay just beyond the reach of my fingers. Rapidly I changed my position and sought, without undue noise, to move the keys with my foot. I had actually succeeded in sliding them back onto the mattress when, unheralded by any audible footstep, Karamina came through the doorway, holding the marmoset in her arms. She wore a dress of fragile muslin material, and out from its folds protruded one silk-stockinged foot, resting in a high-heeled red shoe. For a moment she stood watching me with a sort of enforced composure, then her glance strayed to the keys lying upon the floor. Slowly, and with her eyes fixed again upon my face, she crossed the room, stooped, and took up the key-ring. It was one of the poignant moments of my life, for by that simple act all my hopes had been shattered. Any poor lingering doubt that I may have had left me now. Had the slightest spark of friendship animated the bosom of Karamina, most certainly she would have overlooked the presence of the keys, and of the keys which represented my one hope of escape from the clutches of the fiendish Chinaman. There is a silence more eloquent than words. For half a minute or more Karamina stood watching me, forcing herself to watch me, and I looked up at her with a concentrated gaze in which rage and reproach must have been strangely mingled. What eyes she had, of that blackly lustrous sort nearly always associated with unusually dark complexions, but Karamina's complexion was peach-like, or rather of an exquisite and delicate fairness which reminded me of the petal of a rose. By some I had been accused of raving about this girl's beauty, but only by those who had not met her, for indeed she was astonishingly lovely. At last her eyes fell, the long lashes drooped upon her cheeks. She turned and walked slowly to the chair in which Fu Manchu had sat. 
placing the keys upon the table amid the scientific litter she rested one dimpled elbow upon the yellow page of the book and with her chin in her palm again directed upon me that enigmatical gaze i dared not think of the past of the past in which this beautiful treacherous girl had played a part yet watching her i could not believe even now that she was false my state was truly a pitiable one i could have cried out in sheer anguish with her long lashes partly lowered she watched me a while then spoke and her voice was music which seemed to mock me every inflection of that elusive accent reopened lancet-like the ancient wound why do you look at me so she said almost in a whisper by what right do you reproach me have you ever offered me friendship that i should repay you with friendship when first you come to the house where i was by the river came to save some one from there was the familiar hesitation which always preceded the name of fu manchu from him you treated me as your enemy although i would have been your friend there was appeal in the soft voice but i laughed mockingly and threw myself back upon the divan karamaneh stretched out her hands toward me and i shall never forget the expression which flashed into those glorious eyes but seeing me intolerant of her appeal she drew back and quickly turned her head aside even in this hour of extremity of impotent wrath i could find no contempt in my heart for her feeble hypocrisy with all the old wonder i watched that exquisite profile and karamaneh's very deceitfulness was a salve for had she not cared she would not have attempted it suddenly she stood up taking the keys in her hands and approached me not by word nor by look she said quietly have you asked me for my friendship but because i cannot bear you to think of me as you do i will prove that i am not the hypocrite and the liar you think me you will not trust me but i will trust you i looked up into her eyes and knew a pagan joy when they faltered before my searching gaze she threw herself upon her knees beside me and the faint exquisite perfume inseparable from my memories of her became perceptible and seemed as to of old to intoxicate me the lock clicked and i was free Karamina rose swiftly to her feet as I stood upright and outstretched my cramped arms. For one delirious moment her bewitching face was close to mine, and the dictates of madness almost ruled. But I clenched my teeth and turned sharply aside. I could not trust myself to speak. With Fu Manchu's marmoset again gambling before us, she walked through the curtained doorway into the room beyond. It was in darkness, but I could see the slave-girl in front of me, a slim silhouette, as she walked to a screened window, and, opening the screen in the manner of a folding door, also threw open the window. "'Look,' she whispered. I crept forward and stood beside her. I found myself looking down into Museum Street from a first-floor window. Belated traffic still passed along New Oxford Street on the left, but not a solitary figure was visible to the right as far as I could see, and that was nearly to the railings of the museum. Immediately opposite, in one of the flats which I had noticed earlier in the evening, another window was opened. I turned, and in the reflected light saw Karamina held a cord in her hand. Our eyes met in the semi-darkness. She began to haul the cord into the window, and, looking upward, I perceived that it was looped in some way over the telegraph cables which crossed the street at that point. 
it was a slender cord and it appeared to be passed across the joint in the cables almost immediately above the centre of the roadway as it was hauled in a second and stronger line attached to it was pulled in turn over the cables and thence in by the window karamaneh twisted a length of it around a metal bracket fastened in the wall and placed a light wooden crossbar in my hand make sure that there is no one in the street she said craning out and looking to right and left then swing across the length of a rope is just sufficient to enable you to swing through the open window opposite and there is a mattress inside to drop upon but release the bar immediately or you may be dragged back the door of the room in which you will find yourself is unlocked and you have only to walk down the stairs and out into the street i peered at the crossbar in my hand then looked hard at the girl beside me i missed something of the old fire of her nature she was very subdued to-night thank you karamaneh i said softly she suppressed a little cry as i spoke her name and drew back into the shadows i believe you are my friend i said but i cannot understand won't you help me to understand i took her unresisting hand and drew her toward me my very soul seemed to thrill at the contact of her lithe body she was trembling wildly and seemed to be trying to speak but although her lips framed the words no sound followed suddenly comprehension came to me i looked down into the street hitherto deserted and into the upturned face of fu manchu wearing a heavy fur-collared coat and with his yellow malignant countenance grotesquely horrible beneath the shade of a large tweed motor-cap he stood motionless looking up at me that he had seen me i could not doubt but had he seen my companion in a choking whisper karamaneh answered my unspoken question he has not seen me i have done much for you do in return a small thing for me save my life she dragged me back from the window and fled across the room to the weird laboratory where i had lain captive throwing herself upon the divan she held out her white wrists and glanced significantly at the manacles lock them upon me she said rapidly quick quick great as was my mental disturbance i managed to grasp the purpose of this device the very extremity of my danger found me cool i fastened the manacles which so recently had confined my own wrists upon the slim wrists of karamaneh a faint and muffled disturbance doubly ominous because there was nothing to proclaim its nature reached me from some place below on the ground floor die something around my mouth directed karamaneh with nervous rapidity and as i began to look about me tear a strip from my dress she said do not hesitate be quick be quick i seized the flimsy muslin and tore off half a yard or so from the hem of the skirt the voice of dr fu manchu became audible he was speaking rapidly sibilantly and evidently was approaching would be upon me in a matter of moments i fastened the strip of fabric over the girl's mouth and tied it behind experiencing a pang half pleasurable and half fearful as i found my hands in contact with the foamy luxuriance of her hair dr fu manchu was entering the room immediately beyond snatching up the bunch of keys i turned and ran for in another instant my retreat would be cut off as i burst once more into the darkened room i became aware that a door on the further side of it was open and framed in the opening was the tall high-shouldered figure of the chinaman still enveloped in his fur coat and wearing the grotesque cap as i saw him so he perceived me and as i sprang to the window he advanced i turned desperately and hurled the bunch of keys with all my force into the dimly seen face 
either because they possessed a chatoyant quality of their own as i had often suspected or by reason of the light reflected through the open window the green eyes gleamed upon me vividly like those of a giant cat one short guttural exclamation paid tribute to the accuracy of my aim then i had the crossbar in my hand i threw one leg across the sill and dire as was my extremity hesitated for an instant ere trusting myself to the flight a vice-like grip fastened upon my left ankle hazily i became aware that the dark room was flooded with figures the whole yellow gang were upon me the entire murder group composed of units recruited from the darkest place of the east i have never counted myself a man of resource and have always envied nayland smith his possession of that quality in him extraordinarily developed but on this occasion the gods were kind to me and i resorted to the only device perhaps which could have saved me Without releasing my hold upon the crossbar, I clutched at the ledge with the fingers of both hands and swung back into the room my right leg, which was already across the sill. With all my strength I kicked out. My heel came in contact, in sickening contact, with a human head, beyond doubt that I had split the skull of the man who held me. The grip upon my ankle was released automatically, and now consigning all my weight to the rope I slipped forward, as a diver, across the broad ledge and found myself sweeping through the night like a winged thing. The line, as Karamina had assured me, was of well-judged length. Down I swept to within six or seven feet of the street level, then up, at ever-decreasing speed, toward the vague oblong of the open window beyond. I hope I have been successful, in some measure, in portraying the varied emotions which it was my lot to experience that night, and it may well seem that nothing more exquisite could remain for me. Yet it was written otherwise, for as I swept up to my goal, describing the inevitable arc which I had no power to check, I saw that one awaited me. Crouching forward, half out of the open window, was a Burmese dacquart, a cross-eyed, leering being whom I well remembered to have encountered two years before in my dealings with Dr. Fu Manchu. One bare, sinewy arm held rigidly at right angles before his breast, he clutched a long, curved knife and waited, waited, for the critical moment when my throat should be at his mercy. I have said that a strange coolness had come to my aid, even now it did not fail me and so incalculably rapid are the workings of the human mind that I remember complimenting myself upon an achievement which Smith himself could not have bettered, and this in the immeasurable interval which intervened between the commencement of my upward swing and my arrival on a level with the window. I threw my body back and thrust my feet forward. As my legs went through the opening, an acute pain in one calf told me that I was not to escape scatheless from the night's melee but the dacquart went rolling over in the darkness of the room as helpless in face of that ramrod stroke as the veriest infant back i swept upon my trapeze a sight to have induced any passing citizen to question his sanity with might and main i sought to check the swing of the pendulum for if i should come within reach of the window behind i doubted not that other knives awaited me it was no difficult feat, and I succeeded in checking my flight. Swinging there above Museum Street, I could even appreciate, so lucid was my mind, the ludicrous element of the situation. I dropped. 
my wounded leg almost failed me and greatly shaken but with no other serious damage i picked myself up from the dust of the roadway it was a mockery of fate that the problem which nayland smith had set me to solve should have been solved thus for i could not doubt that by means of the branch of a tall tree or some other suitable object situated opposite to smith's house in rangoon karamaneh had made her escape as to-night i had made mine apart from the acute pain in my calf i knew that the dacquit's knife had bitten deeply by reason of the fact that a warm liquid was trickling down into my boot like any drunkard i stood there in the middle of the road looking up at the vacant window where the dacquit had been and up at the window above the shop of j salomon where i knew fu manchu to be but for some reason the latter window had been closed or almost closed and as i stood there this reason became apparent to me the sound of running footsteps came from the direction of new oxford street i turned to see two policemen bearing down upon me this was a time for quick decisions and prompt action i weighed all the circumstances in the balance and made the last vital choice of the night i turned and ran towards the british museum as though the worst of fu manchu's creatures and not my allies the police were at my heels no one else was in sight but as i whirled into the square the red lamp of a slowly retreating taxi became visible some hundred yards to the left my leg was paining me greatly but the nature of the wound did not interfere with my progress therefore i continued my headlong career and ere the police had reached the end of museum street i had my hand upon the door-handle of the cab for the fates being persistently kind to me the vehicle was for hire dr cleves harley street i shouted at the man drive like hell it's an urgent case i leaped into the cab within five seconds from the time that i slammed the door and dropped back panting upon the cushions we were speeding westward toward the house of the famous pathologist thereby throwing the police hopelessly off the track faintly to my ears came the purr of a police whistle the taximan evidently did not hear the significant sound merciful providence had rung down the curtain for to-night my role in the yellow drama was finished end of chapter twenty Recording by Elaine Tweddle, Stirling, Ontario.